Are you eager to learn more about law? Me too. Hello, my name is Sarah Chayo. Welcome to A Question of Law, a podcast created for law enthusiasts who want to increase their knowledge and deepen their understanding of the law. Our guests, legal professionals chosen from an array of legal proficiencies, will explain to us the fundamental principles of a specific topics in the areas of expertise. Then, they will educate us on new legal developments in their fields in the form of a recent case law or new legislation. They'll share with us their opinions on the ramifications of these latest advances. Finally, we'll talk about their career path and uncover some great insights about their lives and experiences. So, if you want to feed your curiosity, enrich your mind and get inspired. Take a break, sit back and remain tuned in. This episode of A Question of Law is the second special edition of the year, as it will concentrate exclusively on the life and career of our returning guest, Richard Miran. Richard will reveal what has been the driving forces that have fueled his determination throughout his career and led him to pioneer the law on corporate liability for which he is world-renowned. We'll discover why he has decided to become a lawyer, his ordeal with discrimination, his deeply felt sense of injustice and how those influences have shaped his career. Full of purpose, insight and advice, this episode will allow us to look behind the scenes to understand better and get inspired by a very successful lawyer, usually very private too. So let's start. Hello, Richard. Welcome back to A Question of Law. I'm absolutely delighted to have you back here with us for a second edition. This time, I will only briefly mention your remarkable work and fantastic 30-year-long career at Lide as a partner and the head of the international department. As discussed in the first episode, your groundbreaking work has allowed you to establish that the UK-based parent company of multinational corporations can be made liable for damages and human rights violations committed by the subsidiaries abroad. But rather than trying to describe your work, I should let you tell us who you are and what your job entails. Okay, I'm Richard Meeran. I'm a partner at Lee Day. And as you say, I've been there since 1990, July 1990, in fact. I'm currently the head of the international department of the firm, where over the years we have we've done a number of different cases uh, in the international sphere against corporations, against multinational corporations, and also against the government. Until recently, the work has really broken down into those two main categories. Could you tell us a bit more about the area of law that you've developed and what was the purpose for taking on these kind of cases? The objective of these multinational cases is twofold. And this has always been the position from the outset. First, to obtain redress for people whose health and livelihoods have been adversely affected by multinational operations in the global south. And secondly, to serve as a deterrent against bad practice by multinationals. So underlying 
this obviously is a concern that because of standards that are more lax or are not enforced in developing countries, that multinationals have been operating in a manner that would not be tolerated in developed countries, and that as a result, people have been have suffered damage. And secondly, that because of the nature of the legal system and the financial position and vulnerability of mm-hmm. communities and people in developing countries, that they haven't been able to obtain access to justice in their local courts. And so the idea then has been to try and secure justice for them in the multinational home courts. So the whole strategy from the beginning has been to try and bring that about, to get justice for the victims and to act as a deterrent against human rights abuses in developing countries. Mm-hmm. Very honourable purpose indeed. So when did you decide to become a lawyer and what has influenced your choice? Well, ever since I was a young child, Sarah, I think I've had an acute sense of fairness or unfairness and injustice. And that really stems from two features of my background. First, growing up in the 60s and 70s, I think any person of colour who went through that experience would tell you that that the racism was rife and harsh. It was something that you experienced on almost a a daily basis, including in my case, on one occasion, being thrown off a bus by skinheads. So, you know, it was was tough during that time. And I don't think my experience was particularly unusual. But the second factor for me was that my father's family was from South Africa. And I uh, went there from when I was a young child. And so at a young age, uh, knew about apartheid and really serious racial discrimination, which was legislated for in that case. So I think those two factors really influenced me to move down the route of a career in trying to achieve uh, social justice. It was a natural thing for me. Have you ever lived in South Africa during the time of apartheid? No, I haven't. But as I said, um, a lot of my family lived there and I had a lot of contact with them, including some family members who were quite active politically. Mm-hmm. So that was something I, I was aware of uh, throughout my childhood. And then, of course, that was the reason why my work initially focused on cases in South Africa. Mm-hmm. So it's been uh, a feature of my career. So you said that you've experienced discrimination when you were a child. Have you experienced discrimination since you've been an adult and a lawyer? Well, certainly throughout my legal career. And again, I don't think I'm unique in that regard when it comes to people of colour who have joined the legal profession. Mm -hmm. Uh, For instance, um, right at the start when I was applying for jobs, I experienced it in a very direct way. In uh, one case, um, led to me bringing a claim in the industrial tribunal, now the employment tribunal, mm-hmm. uh, against a firm of solicitors for racial discrimination. I believe I was the first solicitor to bring such a case, but I don't suppose I was 
uh, by any means um, the first person who experienced that kind of mistreatment or the last. Uh, at that time, there were only, I think, 100 black and Asian solicitors in the country. Now there are a lot more. I don't suppose that that kind of overt experience that uh, I had at the beginning and, and other people would have had at the beginning occurs very much now. But one only has to look at the composition of the legal profession today to see that racism is still very much in play. There are very few black lawyers who reach senior positions, partnership positions in law firms. So the problem of structural racism is still, uh, unfortunately, alive and kicking and, and needs to be dealt with you know, throughout my career. And again, you know, this is something, this is an experience that uh, others will understand. You experience at all kinds of levels when you're dealing with your opponents. Sometimes they might assume that someone who is actually much more junior than you, who is white, is the person in charge. That's a, quite a common experience, both with not just with lawyers, but with clients, all kinds of people that you come across. And um, it's an unpleasant, uh, unpleasant experience. And unfortunately, whatever people may say, it's still very much, uh, very much there. Mm -hmm. That's a very interesting point, and to some extent, eye-opening about the legal profession—a place where we would least expect any form of discrimination. Now, after qualifying as a solicitor, you went on to work for a law firm, and within a few years, you moved on to Day. Very quickly, you started to work on corporate liability. Could you explain to us how you found yourself working and developing this area of law? When I joined Lee Day in July 1990, it was to work uh, with Martin Day on the Sellafield leukemia cases. So these were very high profile cases brought on behalf of children who sustained leukemia living near a nuclear reprocessing plant, which was operated by British Nuclear Fuel. So it was a major case. And we had fresh fields on the other side. So there were just a, a few of us at Lee Day and this kind of army of lawyers and in-house lawyers and technical people on the other side. Quite a, a daunting prospect. The case went on for three years. And at the end of it, because we been working so hard on the case we didn't have any anything else to do any cases to continue with once that had finished in early 1993 so mm -hmm. we were wondering what area uh, we would want to develop and you know as both of us had been involved in campaigns against multinational companies Uh, concerning exploitation of people in developing countries that might be uh, in a work setting or pharmaceutical companies, a whole variety of different examples. Mm -hmm. uh, we decided that it would be interesting to see if we could develop the law around legal accountability of multinationals. And, I mean, that was... A pretty major challenge because it was immediately apparent that there would be problems over jurisdiction, getting jurisdiction over the company, and there was a 
specifically a, a problem with this principle of forum non-convenience, which enables courts to decline jurisdiction mm-hmm. as a more appropriate forum, namely the local courts. But the other problem was the corporate veil. So those were both issues that were obstacles that were identified immediately. But now, having gone through that big case against British nuclear fuels, we felt quite brave, actually, mm-hmm. and um, prepared to take something on that I think um, I might think twice about nowadays, having having got much older and a bit more risk-averse. But that's, that's how it started. So the underlying issue that we were trying to tackle was the recognition that People living in the global south, first of all, were exploited because companies operating there were not regulated, uh, were not subject to enforcement of laws in the same way as they would be in Europe or the US. And as a result of that, the kinds of exposures to toxic substances and other hazards was much more serious than it would be in Europe or the US. And in addition, that when harm occurred, people were unlikely and unable to obtain legal representation in their own countries. So that led us to trying to devise a, a method for holding multinationals to account in the home courts in England, where legal representation would be feasible, but um, that in turn raised other problems, as I said, concerning jurisdiction and the corporate veil. So that's how it started in 1993. I think the first case I did was filed in at the end of 94. And those were the cases against um, Thor Chemicals and Rio Tinto for the man who'd worked on the uranium mine in in Namibia. Mm -hmm, Very interesting. So you joined Lee Day in 1990 and have spent most of your career there. So what is it about this law firm that has kept you there for so long? I feel so privileged and honoured to have worked with Lee Day for so long. Uh, we've had the opportunity to to develop mm-hmm. groundbreaking work, which hopefully has assisted thousands of human rights victims and also served as a prevention against future human rights abuses in many instances. Mm-hmm. So from that perspective, the work has been incredibly rewarding and satisfying and of course we also have the opportunity to to travel a lot to meet the victims to meet the communities and that has also been such um, an incredible experience mm-hmm. to work with communities to to travel and to see how life really is in certain places you know when you normally when you travel you see the good bits. You yes. you don't see much of, of real life. But um, here you do. You see the poverty and the suffering, but also the amazing 
courage and uh, energy of people who are struggling, then it's very uplifting. So for me, although the work has often been very stressful, there has never been a Sunday night where I thought to myself, oh God, it's Monday morning, I can't face going to work. I've always looked forward to going to work. You know, and lots of my friends um, have that feeling that Sunday evening blues, I think people call it. I've never had that. So, you know, in 30 years, I think that's, that's quite, it's quite something. So, as I say, it's been a real honour and privilege to do this work and to, to be at the firm. And I, it wouldn't have been possible to do this work at any other organisation. Why couldn't I have done this work anywhere else? Well, there isn't another firm in the UK that does this work, certainly not to this extent. There are a couple of firms that have done a couple of cases, but no firm has, has focused on it in the way that we have done over such a long period of time. And, you know, most of the cases that have been responsible for developing the law in this area are our, our cases. But you had a little bit of a break from Lee Day for four years and you went to Australia. Would you like to talk about that? Not really. Uh, it was probably a bit of a midlife crisis, to be honest, going there. I've <laughs> <laughs> uh, done some quite big cases and um, that, that had gone on for several years, quite uh, hard-fought, stressful cases, and I needed just a bit of a change to do something different. Uh, so I went to a firm in Melbourne, which uh, has a similar ethos to Lee Day. I did some important cases there. I started a case against a company called Anvil Mining, an Australian mining company that had been implicated in serious human rights violations in the DRC. And um, what had happened there was that uh, there'd been a, a small-scale uprising around the company's mine. The Congolese military had attended the area and had summarily executed quite a number of people and carried out all kinds of other serious human rights violations. And mm -hmm. the claim was brought against Anvil Mining for alleged complicity mm -hmm. in those human rights violations. We started in Western Australia had to be discontinued for various reasons there and uh, Canadian lawyers tried to continue with the claim in Canada but unfortunately mm. that wasn't possible so it's one of those cases which you know, tragically it wasn't possible to pursue. I did another case of a class action uh, against Merck, a pharmaceutical company which had withdrawn a an anti-arthritic drug called Vioxx, which had been linked statistically with increases in heart attacks and thrombotic strokes. Mm -hmm. So I initiated that class action, but um, that, that continued after I left. I was in Australia for four years, and I was delighted actually to go back to Lee Day because um, uh, there isn't a firm uh, like Lee Day anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. So I was very pleased to get back. Well, thank you very much for sharing this. Um, it's been very interesting. Now, what is the most successful event of your career so far and the one that made you the proudest to be a lawyer? Well, there's no doubt that that would be the victory that we achieved in the House of Lords 
which is now the Supreme Court, in the Cape PLC case, that's for the 7,500 South African asbestos miners. That was in 2000. And that was after a very long forum non-convenience battle that had continued up and down the court system for more than three years. And during that time, a high proportion of the clients had died. Mm-hmm. And it was um, a very hard-fought battle. And, you know, we had lost the second time round in the Court of Appeal, and it was it was an uphill struggle. Mm-hmm. And when it got to the House of Lords, the South African government intervened on the side of the claimants. So there was a decision taken by the South African cabinet. They intervened and um, we succeeded. It was a a unanimous decision of the House of Lords, 5-0 victory. So that was a real triumph. And it was celebrated all over South Africa by people all over South Africa, Mm -hmm. because this was a company that had caused a trail of devastation around the country, a trail of death, which is still going on today, by the way. You know, there's still a lot, a lot of people who die of asbestos-related diseases because of the operations of this company and the environmental damage is there. So that was um, a huge legal victory and moral and psychological victory. Mm-hmm. And after a very long battle and against all the odds, and it, you know, it's still a case that is referred to a lot today. Even last week, you may have read about the Supreme Court judgment in the case against Shell for the victims of the pollution in Nigeria, the water pollution in Nigeria. Well, that case referred to the Cape PLC case. So did the Vedanta decision in 2019 again referred to the Cape PLC case. So it's a case that has had lasting repercussions, positive ones, from the perspective of victims. Mm-hmm. It was a company that, that had wielded enormous influence and power at the time it was operating. And the communities who were decimated by its operations had felt powerless. And so you know, being able to secure that victory in the English courts was a very positive experience for everybody. Well, that makes the success of this decision even more remarkable. So what has been the most significant hurdle in your career and how have you overcome it? I would say the most significant hurdle was the very first case that we did. And that was the case against Thor Chemicals, the South African workers poisoned by mercury. That um, factory where they worked, incidentally, was not far away from where my grandmother lived in South Africa, between Marisburg and Durban. And when I first got instructions in that case, I Mm -hmm. sought um, views from a leading QC and a retired Court of Appeal judge, both of whom said that it was really good idea to bring the case, but that it would never succeed, that the court would never allow it to proceed. And when we first 
went to court, I can remember the judge asking why all these South Africans were suing in this court, which was quite an ominous sign. Mm -hmm. Well, I have to say, after he'd heard what had happened to the workers, how badly they'd been treated, his attitude changed and he ruled in our favour on jurisdiction. So to succeed in that case against all the odds at that stage was a very uplifting Mm -hmm. experience. I should say nowadays, because this practice of suing multinationals for human rights violations has become more accepted. You'd never get a judge asking that question now. But back then, it was quite a different reception. Mm -hmm. And in general, are you happier to settle a case or to go to court and have the opportunity of changing or influencing the law? Well, I think most lawyers in my position would say generally if it was up to them they would prefer to get a decision at trial but of course our role is to act in the best interests of our clients and taking a case all the way to trial is often not in their best interests first of all because a trial may be many years away whereas a settlement might be something that it's possible to achieve Uh, relatively quickly and when you have clients who are impoverished then obtaining compensation quickly is vital secondly can't guarantee that you'll you will succeed at trial and therefore bearing in mind the risks of litigation even if you have a very strong case then it may well be in your client's best interest to settle and get the certainty of compensation. And thirdly, success is not only a question of winning at trial. It doesn't only arise from winning at trial. Many of the cases that we have done, Mm -hmm. most of them, in fact, which have been responsible for developing the law, haven't gone to trial at all. If you think about the the PLC case, in the end, never got to trial. The recent cases against Vedanta, and Shell have not gone to trial. They've been victories on issues around jurisdiction and the corporate veil. So just the the mere fact of successfully resolving disputes around those issues can have very beneficial effects on other cases. So you don't need to go to trial in order to to move things forward to develop the law. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Now, what is the situation that has allowed you to learn the most during your career? I think I've learned a few lessons in during my career, which, uh, if um, if followed by others, might serve them quite well. I think the first thing is to to work hard on your cases, to get to grips with the issues and the evidence, and if you do, to then be confident in your own ability and mm-hmm. your own judgment and not necessarily to defer to more senior people, uh, even if they're more experienced, because they may not have thought things through as carefully as you. So I think that's the first thing. A second related 
point is that um, you shouldn't necessarily be put off uh, when you have ideas, new ideas about new cases or different strategies. You shouldn't necessarily be put off by more senior people who may, through experience, have become a bit more risk-averse and conservative because that's how you break new ground. Uh, that's what I found in in my work is that there were more experienced people who tried to put me off because they thought certain approaches would not succeed. And maybe I was just lucky, but if you don't try things, you'll never succeed and things will never move forward. So I think that's that's the second thing. And the third thing, again, which is related, is that if you want to develop the law to break new ground, then you have to try different approaches. Uh, you can't follow always follow the recipe book. You, you have to sometimes. Uh, there needs to be an element of unpredictability to take your opponents by surprise to some extent. I think the three points are quite similar, but um, they've been very important uh, in my legal career. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree with you. But when a lawyer loses a case on a point of law, such as the liability of the parent company, then I believe it's the end of the line for victims. They do not have any other avenues to get remedies. Is that right? I think that's invariably the case. Um, in this area because you are usually dealing with clients who have no realistic means of access to justice in the local courts. And if their claim in England has been dismissed, mm -hmm. then uh, the only possible options might be non-judicial avenues, but those are rarely effective. Uh, it's an important point because, you know, to lose a case for the client, first of all, there's the sense of injustice that they will feel, that justice hasn't been done. They've probably gone through a very stressful experience, which has taken up a lot of their time and energy. And they have nothing to show for it at the end. They may be, often are, people who are desperately poor. and so. They were hoping to obtain compensation for themselves and their families. They may have extended families. So, you know, it's a very serious outcome to lose a case for a victim. Mm -hmm. Of course. Now, would you have any advice for aspiring lawyers listening to this podcast? Well, I think the most important advice is to do something that interests and motivates you. Because that is most likely to be the thing that you'll do well and flourish in. There's nothing more soul-destroying, especially given how much of your time you spend working than doing a job that you don't find interesting. You know, when I joined Lee Day, I had been working for a while in a commercial firm, doing work that really didn't motivate me at all, but for which I was paid quite a lot of money. And I was doing a case involving a contract dispute over some Porsche motor cars. And our trial was interrupted by an infant settlement approval hearing, where a child who had been run over 
in a road traffic accident and suffered brain damage was being paid damages of £50,000. Whereas my client in the commercial case was suing for a few million pounds for two cars that he'd never had. And that really brought it home. In fact, the, the case that had interrupted us for the child was Martin Day's case. And when he advertised a very small advert in, in the Gazette, a few weeks later that I happened to notice um, to go and help him on the Sellafield cases against British nuclear fuels, I was delighted to, to apply for that job, even though I took quite a substantial drop in salary to do it. And I never looked back. And I'm so pleased that I did that. Uh, I think if I'd carried on in, in the work I was doing, I might have given up altogether. Uh, it's so important to, to do something that, that drives you and that you enjoy and where you feel that um, you're bringing some kind of benefit. Yes, I completely agree with you. I think it's important to do what we believe in deeply. Now, I've seen on one of your profiles, and I believe it's on Legal 500, that one of your hobby is disco. Could yeah. you tell us more about this? Yeah, I love listening to disco. And, and when, um, when we're not in lockdown and pandemic mode, um, we often, with our close group of friends have a disco uh, at the weekend and um, I think that's a great way to un unwind you know it's good exercise and just fun to be with friends um, doing disco yes absolutely so obviously I have to ask this question oh. are you a good dancer <laughs> <laughs> well I think so but my my daughter would say I'm a terrible dancer <laughs> So long as it brings you satisfaction, then that should be fine. <laughs> well, on this dancing step, I would say that we've reached the end of our podcast. So, Richard, you've provided us with a great deal of insight, advice and personal anecdotes, which initially you were slightly reluctant to share, asking me who would be interested. But I replied, and I still believe, that your amazing achievements will be an inspiration for many. So I'm incredibly thankful for your generosity in terms of time, the information that you shared with us today, as well as the trust that you've placed on this podcast. So thank you very much. Thank you, Sarah. The information contained on this episode is not to be interpreted as legal advice, but is provided for informative purpose only. Formal legal advice should be sought for any specific case. Our guests are presenting their personal opinions in the context of an informal conversation and do not speak on behalf of their employers, partners, contractors or clients. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of A Question of Law. Your engagement with the show is at the heart of its success. The show has already received a fantastic amount of support and I'm really thankful for this. But the challenge is to keep you, the audience, engaged and fascinated. So if you have appreciated the show, please let me know by tuning in for the next one, rating and sharing the episodes and leaving comments. So until the next question of law, keep well.